Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we always like to start, well, we haven't done it for a while now, I guess, but uh, we, we have traditionally started with the Angelus. So do you have a, an intention for our Angelus for today? We just celebrated the, the feast of Corpus Christi, and you know that's uh, a beautiful feast in which we give thanks to God for the great gift of the Holy Eucharist. So um, I think I would uh, like to offer this that um, for the strengthening of faith in the Holy Eucharist among our people. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Rhodes begins a three-part series on the Mass, starting with a reflection on the Eucharist and the Feast of Corpus Christi, which we just celebrated less than a week ago, and how we are called to participate in the Mass interiorly and exteriorly. Afterwards, he talks about the history of the Mass and its continuity over the centuries, starting with the Last Supper, to the first Christians, to how we celebrate Mass today with a special focus on St. Justin Martyr, the first Christian apologist who lived in the second century, and his letter explaining the Mass to the Roman Emperor. The show wraps up with listener-submitted questions on Catholic weddings, support groups for the widowed, incorruptible saints, and much more. If you would like to check out previous episodes of Truth in Charity or ask Bishop a question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We're going to be getting to some of your questions later on in the show, but uh, since we did just celebrate the Feast of Corpus Christi this past Sunday, June 3rd, uh, or the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ. Thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the Mass. I know you have a lot to say about it, so hey. maybe we can break this down further in the future and kind of over a couple episodes, uh, and maybe this would just be a more of a brief overview of the Mass. Um, but also, sometimes associated with Corpus Christi are processions. Mm-hmm. Is that something that happens very much in this diocese? Some parishes. I Usually on every feast of Corpus Christi, I, I try to go to a parish where we'll have a, 
uh, Corpus Christi procession after mass, and uh-huh. we've had some beautiful ones, some some very large ones. Um, this year, I I wasn't able to because last Sunday I had the baccalaureate mass for St. Joseph High School, but uh-huh. so I missed carrying the the monstrance, carrying the Holy Eucharist in a Corpus Christi procession. But most years, I, I do, and um, it has special meaning for me because. Back in 1980, I served Mass and was in a Corpus Christi procession with Pope John Paul II. Hmm. And then two years after that, in 1982, I was his deacon for Corpus Christi and carried the canopy over his head. One of the deacons carried the canopy over his head for the the uh, Corpus Christi procession. So I always think back to St. John Paul and his great devotion to the Holy Eucharist. Wow. Um, but really... It kind of reminds me, Corpus Christi and the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday are the two liturgies in the in the year where we really give great honor and glory to the Lord present in the Holy Eucharist. But I think it makes us um, also call to mind that the Eucharist is really the heart of the church. And it's important to, to appreciate it or to discover, to rediscover this great gift that the Lord left us on the night before he died. It's um, a great mystery of our faith. And to think about it, every time we go to Mass, we encounter the event of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection, the Paschal mystery. We encounter him. We encounter this event, and we also encounter this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made man. So why do we go to Mass? We go to Mass to encounter God. Mm -hmm. And we do through His Word and through the body and blood of His Son. We go to pray. We're fulfilling the third commandment of the Decalogue to keep holy the Lord's day. And to remember, as Pope Francis once said, that when we go to Mass, we don't go to a museum. You know, we go to a living encounter with the Lord. Yeah. It's not just a museum. It's a living encounter with the Lord. So, very fundamentally, the Mass is the memorial of Christ's Passover from death to life. It's not just going to recall or past events, but also those events of the past, in a certain way, become present and become real. In this case, Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. And that's why we call, it's, it's the Passover of Christ that we recall, the Paschal mystery, and it becomes present. The sacrifice that Christ offered once and for all on the cross remains ever present. Hmm. So this is the profound reality and meaning of the Mass. We celebrate Jesus' Passover and we participate in it the Lord makes himself bread broken for us. He pours out his love and his mercy upon us in the Eucharist. And then we're entering into the victory of his resurrection. We're united with Jesus and his sacrifice, and he draws us forth to eternal life. It's a mysterious thing. It's a, it's a mystery. The Eucharist is a mystery, yet it's real. It's real. We can say that when we go to Mass, we're going to Mount Calvary, in a Mm -hmm. sense. We're entering the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We're entering into his Paschal mystery. 
the Second Vatican Council said that we're not to participate in the liturgy as strangers or silent spectators, but as participants. It's important that we be conscious of what we're doing and to actively and devoutly participate at Mass. We shouldn't just go to Mass superficially, but really pray. It's not always easy. We can easily be distracted. But we're called to participate in Mass interiorly as well as exteriorly. We should be saying the prayers and singing the hymns. We should be entering into the mystery with our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and our souls. And in that way, the Eucharist is forming us as disciples of Jesus. And we're being educated in love because what is the Eucharist but the making present of Christ's self-giving love in the Paschal mystery? I always think it's, it's and try to remind people how the Eucharist is the sacrament of charity. It's Jesus loving us to the end, offering up his body and blood for us. So that means when we leave, nourished by the body and blood of the Lord, we go forth to bring his love to others, to bring his love into the world, to live Eucharistic lives, lives of self-giving love. When we talk about the Mass, and maybe we can get into what constitutes a Catholic Mass and some of the components of it, uh, but how much of it historically comes from an evolution of a Jewish celebration that uh, kind of got updated maybe with, with Jesus, and how much of it is newly instituted by Christ? That's a great question because uh, we see many Jewish elements of the Mass. Actually, there's a, a, a relatively recent book on uh, the Jewish elements of the Mass, and I can't remember the exact title, but it traces how this developed from the Old Testament prayers and liturgies, especially the prayers of blessing that would have been said, for example, at the Passover meal. If you look at the prayers, for example, that the priest says at the offertory, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, mm-hmm. where he's holding up the patent and then the chalice, they're very Jewish. I mean, they're very similar yeah. to Jewish prayers, but those are prayers Jesus would have said, huh. and probably also at the Last Supper. And of course, the Last Supper was in the context of a Passover meal. So we see elements of the Jewish Passover, but of course, transformed by the new covenant that Christ was establishing. There was no lamb at the Last Supper as at a Passover meal because, well, there was a lamb, but it was Jesus, Mm -hmm. the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Unleavened bread was used, just like at the Passover meal in Exodus. And wine was drank, just as at the Passover meal. So there are all a lot of parallels like that and others. But again, it was transformed, and uh, Jesus himself becomes the sacrifice, which is totally new. That the victim and the priest are the same. Mm -hmm. Christ is both the victim and the priest, the one being offered and the one offering. And then when we go to a mass, uh, sometimes it's talked about as the the two components that you talked about a little bit there, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, Sometimes 
see also introductory rights and concluding rights as kind of a four-part formula. How, how would you kind of break down the mass into its components? Yeah, those would be the four parts. And okay. I think it would be good, Kyle, maybe on the show we could go through it in a little more detail where yeah. we talk about the introductory rights and why we do what we do. Where did that come from? Yeah. I think it's really interesting to study the history of the Mass and its development. Of course, it, be, it was there from the very beginning, the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. But then we know that the first Christians gathered. They called it the breaking of the bread. We read about this in the Acts of the Apostles. And then it developed in an organic way through the decades and through the centuries. So we have ancient texts which kind of detail how they celebrated Mass in those first centuries. Uh And it's very interesting, and we see the continuity with the way we celebrate Mass today. So it's not a discontinuity, it's a continuity. They always listen to the reading of the Scriptures, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, in those early decades, the Scriptures were still being, the New Testament was uh, still being composed. So, but, um, but definitely they offered praise and thanks to God, the bread and wine were used. We have a very early text from the second century by St. Justin, Mm -hmm. the martyr. And I think that's one of the earliest texts where we have some good detail about how those early Christians celebrated Mass. I mean, there are other things too, like the Didache and that, where we see some elements of what they did. But Justin Martyrs is probably the most uh, extended description of how Mass was celebrated, at least in the mid-2nd century. But it wouldn't have been new at that point. I mean, they were celebrating it for decades beforehand. All right. Well, I have some more things I would like to talk about with the Mass here. We'll have to talk about that. Also, I have questions that have been submitted by listeners that we can look through. And that'll be coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And earlier you were talking about the, it's called the First Apology of Justin Martyr. And he died in 165 AD. So uh, it seems like this was written around 150. Uh, It's kind of a, a long quote, but I think like you mentioned, this does give a pretty obvious description of what we celebrate today as a mass. So... Yeah, and you know, Kyle, that work that St. Justin wrote, the Apologies, and this is his first apology, St. Justin was a layman. He wasn't a priest. Oh, okay. And it was part of a a work that he wrote, kind of part of a letter that he wrote to the Roman emperor, whose name was uh, Antoninus. And St. Justin Martyr, he was the first Christian apologist. In other words, an apologist is a defender of the faith. Mm Mm-hmm. So we have these early Christian apologists, and it's very interesting. I love reading the early fathers of the church. And St. Justin was basically defending the faith Uh in this letter to the emperor. Now, eventually, St. Justin was going to, would be scourged and beheaded. That's why he's called St. Joseph, St. Justin Martyr, Hmm. because he refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. But he was writing to the emperor to defend Christians. And he wrote about what Christians did on Sunday. At that time, I think they were being accused of being cannibals. They were accused of cannibalism. So he's kind of writing in defense of the Christians who were being persecuted. 
And um, it's very interesting, as he explained to the emperor in this writing, what Christians did on the day of the sun, S-U-N, right. the day of the sun, we call it Sunday. Uh-huh. Okay, so maybe I can read a little excerpt of this and uh, hear your th- thoughts and comments on it. It says, on the day, which is called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the countryside gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there's time. Then when the reader has finished, the president in a discourse admonishes and invites the people to practice these examples of virtue. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And as we mentioned before, when we have finished the prayer, bread is presented and wine with water. The president likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent by saying amen. The elements which have been Eucharistized are distributed and received by each one, and they are sent to the absent by the deacon. Those who are prosperous, if they wish, contribute what each one deems appropriate, and the collection is deposited with the president. And he takes care of the orphans and widows and those who are needy because of sickness or other cause and the captives and the strangers who sojourn among us. In brief, he is the curate of all who are in need. Sunday indeed is the day on which we all hold our common assembly inasmuch as it is the first day in which God transforming the darkness and matter created the universe. And on the same day, our savior, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For they crucified him on the day before Saturday, and on the day after, which is Sunday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things, which we have transmitted to you also for your earnest consideration. Yeah, isn't that an amazing passage? Yeah. I mean, 150, 155 AD, we read this and we we immediately recognize that it's the Sunday Eucharist. Mm -hmm. These are the basic lines of the Mass that we celebrate today. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier uh, the Liturgy of the Word. So, St. Justin talks about how the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets were read. Mm-hmm. And then, for listeners who may wonder, the one who presides, he calls him the president, would, would have been the bishop or the priest. Okay. You know, the president, he who presides, he would admonish and challenge them to imitate what they're, they were celebrating. So what's that? That's the homily. Yeah. After that, he said they all stood up. They all rose together and they offered prayers. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. We offer the prayer of the faithful, what we call the general intercessions. Actually, St. Justin also mentions that when those prayers were finished, they had the sign of peace. They exchanged the kiss of peace. Okay. Then they brought up bread and wine mixed with water and presented them to the celebrant, to mm-hmm. the presider. So again, that's like the offertory procession. And what did the presider do? He, he took those gifts of bread and wine, offered praise and glory to the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit, giving thanks to God, Eucharistian. And that's where, of course, we get the name Eucharist, giving thanks. Well, that's the Eucharistic prayer. The Eucharistic prayer is a prayer of great praise and and thanks to God. And it's during the Eucharistic prayer that the words of Jesus at the Last Supper, in which he instituted the Eucharist, are repeated by the priest. 
And then when he's finished the prayers and thanksgiving, everyone gives voice to a, an acclamation, amen. And we call that the great amen, which we sing at the end of the Eucharistic prayer. It's interesting how he uses that verb, the, the, the Eucharistized bread yeah. and wine. Okay, so the bread and wine have been made Eucharist. They've been Eucharistized. They've been transformed into the body and blood of Christ. And notice how they took Holy Communion. The deacons were sent forth to bring Holy Communion to those who, who couldn't be there, the sick, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how when you continue reading St. Justin Martyr, he makes it clear that no one was allowed to take part in the Eucharist unless he or she believed the teaching of the apostles. Hmm. And they couldn't participate unless they were baptized. And they had to be living in keeping with what Christ taught. And we still have that today. People mm-hmm. have to be properly disposed to receive the Holy Eucharist. Obviously, they have to be baptized. So. It's very interesting to study these early Christian writings. And um, these early Christian apologists are really, um, I think, quite um, interesting. And they were fathers of the church, like St. Justin Martyr, who were trying to defend the teachings of the church. And here he is with great courage writing to to the emperor Hmm. and uh, rebutting those who were making false accusations against the Christians, against the early church. And, you know, as we can see here, the, the skeleton, if you will, is, is clearly there and is the same. I'm sure a lot of changes have been made to some of the, the wording here or there or some of the more minor things. As we look today and maybe look into the future, how much do you think we need to protect uh, a certain his- history of the mass or tradition of the mass and how much room is there for modernization? I mean, there's a, there's always seems to be a push for getting with the times or something like that, but, but what's the balance there? Well, when you think about it, the last 1900 years, the mass has developed. I mm-hmm. mean, that's a very, like you mentioned, it's kind of very skeletal. There were many things added later. Mm-hmm. We know, for example, It was only in later centuries that other parts of the Mass developed, like the penitential rite and the gloria and all the various elements. But it was an organic evolution, Mm -hmm. an organic development. In the Middle Ages, even more things were added and the, the mystery was highlighted. And after the Second Vatican Council, because a lot had been added, there was a simplification. So there were certain things that had been added that were basically taken out, but the basics were kept, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fundamental things. So there is, yeah, there is change, there is development, but there are certain things that, that never change. Yeah. I mean, the readings from the scriptures, the priest being the presider, the offering of bread and wine, the various prayers that are offered. I mean, it's very much continuity. And obviously things like music mm-hmm. at the liturgy has developed quite a bit. I mean, when St. Justin Martyr wrote this, there was not even Gregorian chant yet. I mean, that only came with with Pope Gregory the Great. Right. Um, so, yes, I mean, and that's the Holy Spirit at work. 
in the development of the liturgy, and it's it's very very beautiful. And then the development of church architecture. Mm-hmm. I mean, by this time there were no church buildings. Middle of the second century, Christians were being persecuted. Right. The Eucharist was being celebrated in the homes. Uh-huh. Um, so so yes, there's there's tremendous development that took place, but it's all as I keep saying, uh, in continuity. And that's tradition with a mm-hmm. capital T, development under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, great. Again, like we said, there's a lot more we could go into, and we are planning on going more into this, maybe in a, a two-part episode or something like that, digging into the Mass to, to share a little bit more about that. But if you have any questions for Bishop about the Mass or anything else, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about incorruptible saints, non-Catholic weddings, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with Bishop, and we are answering questions that you have submitted. One of our listeners asked, what is a charitable response to a friend who is confused as to why her daughter's fiance, who is Catholic, cannot have a priest presiding at a wedding? The wedding will take place at a Methodist church. Oh, that's an interesting question. If the wedding is is taking place at a Methodist church, they would need permission. A Catholic would need a dispensation from canonical form. So, obviously, when two Catholics marry, they get married in a Catholic church. When there is a mixed marriage, a Catholic marrying a non-Catholic Christian, mm-hmm. uh, we encourage that the wedding be in the Catholic church. But if they have good reasons, a just cause, they can petition for a dispensation from the Catholic form of marriage. So once that dispensation is granted, they can be married validly, for example, in a Protestant church. Okay. But they've been dispensed from using the Catholic form. If they're getting married in a Protestant church, then the Protestant minister is the celebrant. Mm-hmm. You know, the Protestant minister is presiding. A priest could attend and maybe do a reading or do a blessing or something if the uh, Protestant pastor invites him to. Okay. But a priest wouldn't be presiding in a Methodist church. If they're going to use the Catholic form of marriage, which is before a priest or deacon and two witnesses, then it should be in the Catholic church. Sure. So he could attend as a guest. He could The priest could attend. But he wouldn't be the one receiving the vows. I mean, they've been dispensed from that. Mm-hmm. you know. So the Protestant pastor's the one receiving the vows. You know, if they want the priest to preside, then they should have the wedding in a Catholic church and follow the Catholic canonical form of marriage. Okay. And the dispensation that you're talking about, is that common to get that or is it difficult to get? Well, no, it's not it's not too difficult. I mean, there has to be some good reasons. I okay. mean, the Catholic party in order to receive that dispensation, has to affirm their Catholic faith, mm-hmm. that they in- intend to continue practicing their Catholic faith, and to do everything in his or her power to raise the children as Catholics. Mm-hmm. If those promises aren't made, they will not receive the dispensation. Okay. 
uh, my mom actually, Joanne Hyman from St. Mary's in Decatur. Was, I think your mom has asked other questions on this show, Kyle. She, she is a faithful listener, <laughs> yes. And we were talking about incorruptible saints. Maybe before I ask the question, could you explain what an incorruptible saint is? Yes, it's it's one whose bodies have not been corrupted by death. So if there's a cause of canonization before the beatification, which is the step before canonization, the bodies are exhumed and examined. And, you know, most are decomposed or decomposing, but there are some times where they've discovered bodies after they've been exhumed that there's been no corruption. And that's considered, sometimes it can be miraculous, that uh, the natural process of decomposition of a dead body, of a corpse, hasn't taken place. Yeah. You can think of like St. Bernadette, when they exhumed her body, it was incorrupt. So I, the question would be then, are there any non-Catholic incorruptibles? Joanne, I don't know. I really have never heard of a body exhumed that was incorruptible. I mean, it's unusual for bodies to be exhumed, first uh-huh. of all. Sure. But I'm not, uh, I'm not aware of any non-Catholic incorruptibles. There may be, but I'm just not aware of them. And then a follow-up question would be, are Catholics the only ones that recognize sainthood? And what brought this up is sometimes we'll see in non-Catholic churches that they're named after saints, but it seems like they don't, it's not common within Protestant faiths to recognize sainthood. Yeah. I don't know of any Protestant church that has a process for canonization of saints, but the Orthodox do. Mm -hmm. So to answer that question, are Catholics the only ones that recognize sainthood? No, the Orthodox Church does too. Okay. So they have their process, and I'm not very familiar with how they come to declare saints, uh-huh. but they definitely have saints. There are Orthodox saints. Many of them are held as saints in common between the Catholic and Orthodox, okay. but then there are some that we as Catholics recognize as saints that the Orthodox do not. And there are some that the Orthodox recognize as saints that we as Catholics do not. And so when we see a, a Lutheran church or a Methodist church named after a saint, uh, they're just picking one of the Catholic saints that yeah, I mean, canonized? Exactly. I mean, they would. It, it's not like an official thing, I don't okay. think, for because they don't have a process. However, remember with Martin Luther and them, they they use the saints as, you know, for all Christians are saints, is, and certainly we affirm that too. But we use, you know, saint more commonly to refer to those who, who we have the assurance are in heaven, that they're canonized. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they would use that in a less, the word saint in a less technical sense than we do. But they would hold in common veneration the evangelists, for example. Sure. So you'll see St. Luke's Episcopal Church or, right. or St. John's Lutheran Church or whatever uh-huh. because they honor, they would they would recognize the importance of the apostles, etc. All right. Well, another listener asked, in various translations, Exodus 20 verse 13 states, thou shall not murder. However, we always hear the word kill instead of murder. Why is that? Well, in, you have to go back to the Hebrew. In the biblical Hebrew, the word that's used is murder, ratzah. Okay. Ratzah. 
So technically, the most accurate translation would be, thou shalt not murder. Okay. So the word, uh, basically, when we say thou shalt, shalt not kill, we're talking about unjustified killing. In other words, we're talking about murder. Mm-hmm. There is another Hebrew word for kill that's not used in the commandment. They actually, they could have used a different word, but they used the word for murder. Okay. So we know murder is always morally wrong. It's uh, unjustified killing. But there is killing that is justified. That wouldn't be breaking the commandment. For example, one who kills in self-defense mm-hmm. or a police officer killing someone who is threatening the life of another. Mm-hmm. So we do make this distinction between justified and unjustified killing. The commandment forbids unjustified killing. It forbids murder. So if we see the commandments listed as thou shall not kill, that might just be kind of a, a lazy translation, not a completely accurate one? Right. I think so. I mean, I always think thou shalt not kill. It's it's referring to unjustified right. killing. Right. right. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We've got more of your questions, including questions on Catholic divorce and support for widows. Coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. I'm asking the questions that you've asked for bishop to answer. And one of our submissions was, is it true that Catholics aren't allowed to divorce? Okay, there's a lot to say about that. First of all, I think I have to state very clearly that uh, we believe that marriage is indissoluble. What God has joined, man must not divide. So... What can be legitimate in certain cases is the separation of spouses. For example, if a husband is abusing his wife Mm -hmm. or abusing the children, that would be a a legitimate cause to separate just for self-protection. Sure. But in those cases of separation, the marriage bond is still there because marriage is indissoluble. Unless, of course, it's been proven through the annulment process that the marriage wasn't a true marriage, that it was null and void. But the presumption is that it was valid. You know, if one seeks an annulment, it's because one believes that the marriage wasn't valid, and that has to be proven. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, the church does allow for it has to be very legitimate reasons, a separation of the spouses. Now, there are some t- situations when there is a separation and the marriage bond remains where civil divorce can be tolerated. For example, if it's the only possible way of ensuring certain legal rights, the care of the children, for example, or the protection of inheritance, the hmm. church would would tolerate that, but we just consider it a separation. Mm-hmm. Um, if the marriage bond is still there, even if they get a civil divorce, the marriage bond is still there. 
this gets a little complex, so I recommend that people read the section in the Catechism of the Catholic Church on divorce. Catholic teaching on divorce is found in the Catechism number 2382 to number 2386. Again, number 2382 to number 2386, where it does talk about what I just said, that divorce can be allowed or tolerated if it's the only possible way of ensuring certain legal rights, the care of the children, or the protection of inheritance. But even in that case, if there's not been an annulment, even though a couple might have a civil divorce, we consider them still married. Mm -hmm. You know, the marriage bond remains because marriage is indissoluble, unless it's been proven that the marriage was null and void from the beginning, which is what an annulment would declare. I think, yeah, it can be confusing to think of it as two separate things, the sacrament and then kind of a legal status right. that are two different things. And right. a legal divorce does not mean that you are no longer sacramentally married. married. Correct. And vice versa. If you were never sacramentally married, you could have some kind of a legal marriage that would stand. Right. Uh, and then also... You mentioned the catechism. If people don't have a catechism that's available free online, you can, uh, all kinds of different websites, including the Vatican website and the USCCB has the catechism there that you can scan that for free. Uh, also, someone asked the following question. Is there a Catholic support group in our diocese for those that are widowed? There are some parishes in our diocese that I'm aware of that have Catholic support groups for the widowed, for widows or widowers. I don't know how many of the parishes do, but I have seen that in, in a number of places, and I think it's a very good ministry in a parish to have groups for those who, are, uh, who have lost their spouses. Mm -hmm. On the diocesan level, we don't have anything. We do support these parish groups, but we don't have diocesan groups because you know, it's, it's more appropriate at a, at a uh, parish level. We are looking, this is a little broader, but we are looking at, uh, on the uh, diocesan level, uh, about grief ministry. Okay. Trying to do more support for those who are experiencing grief as the result, or significant grief as the result of a death of a spouse. So I know our uh, Office for Family Life has been studying programs in other dioceses, and I think We'll probably soon be sending more information to parishes about this and, and okay. maybe even having something on the Dawson level. But that's only in the planning stages right now. And the grief ministry would also involve more than the widowed. It could also be grief ministry for parents who have lost a child mm -hmm. and other things like that. I would like to mention we do have a, a group of what they call widows of prayer, a group of of women who are widows who uh, meet occasionally. There's a group in Fort Wayne and a group in Huntington, and uh, they make certain commitments to to prayer, and it kind of like the order of widows in the early church that were established as, as uh, those who would gather for prayer. So that's another uh, thing, but um, which I've met with them a few times, and it's really wonderful to see their their faith and devotion and 
their devout lives of prayer. And is there things for men who are widowed as well? Um, as far as in our parishes, um, I, I would assume so, but I'm not sure. I don't know if there, if there are groups for the widowed include both widows and widowers or not, or maybe okay. they even have separate groups. Uh-huh. I, I didn't think there's one at St. Vincent de Paul in Fort Wayne. I'm not sure about other parishes uh, for widowers. But for, for people that are looking for different support groups, is there a place that you could call at the diocese that might be able to redirect you to your closest parish that might offer something like that? Yeah, I would recommend uh, inquiring with the Secretariat for Evangelization and Discipleship. Okay. Because a lot of those special ministries would come within that secretariat. That secretariat includes our Office for Family Life, our ministries to families, and this would be part of that. So, yeah, I think that's a good place. You could check the Dawson website and contact Fred or Lisa Everett. Fred is the secretary for that secretariat, and Lisa is quite involved as this, um, the head of the Family Life Division, and they do a lot of good work like that. But, you know, on the Dawson level, we can't do everything. A lot of stuff is better done on the parish level, but we try to support these parish ministries as much as we can. All right. Uh, our last question comes from Angie Lingenfelder from St. Therese Little Flower in South Bend, who said, my rosary intention list keeps growing. May I offer my rosary, quote, for the intentions on my rosary prayer list, end quote, or do I need to read each intention each time the rosary is prayed? Angie, thanks for your question. You can offer your rosary for the intentions of those on your rosary prayer list. You don't have to read every intention every time you pray the rosary, because certainly God knows Mm -hmm. who you're offering the rosary for. You make the intention. I have a lot of people who ask for my prayers, and I can't remember all the people's names. I do write a lot down and keep a list of people, but sometimes I forget to do that, and I just say, Lord, you know who have asked for my prayers. Please hear their prayers and give them your grace. And I think we have to you know, trust in, in God. Well, God is omniscient. He knows uh-huh. everything. There are other times where I do actually read the names that I have promised people to pray for, but either is fine. Do you think it's like partial credit versus full credit? <laughs> well, some people have shortcut. better memories than others, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for joining us and answering our questions again. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next Wednesday at noon for another all-new episode of Truth in Charity as we continue Bishop's series on the Mass. Now that he's covered the history of the Mass this week in Part 1, next week he'll begin talking about the elements of the Mass, starting with the introductory rites and the Liturgy of the Word. Then the following week, it's the Liturgy of the Eucharist and the concluding rites. Afterwards, Bishop will answer questions submitted by listeners. To submit yours, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, and you'll receive an email letting you know your question has been received, and another letting you know when Bishop will answer your question. While on the website, click on Audio Library to hear previous episodes of Truth and Charity. 
Listen online anytime at RedeemerRadio.com or just search for Truth and Charity anywhere you listen to podcasts. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. <laughs>